Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tonight, I will be reading Herman Melville's Bartleby. So lie down, close your eyes. And let me read you a story. I am a rather elderly man. The nature of my avocations for the last 30 years has brought me into more than ordinary contact with what would seem an interesting and somewhat singular sort of men, of whom as yet nothing that I know of has ever been written 
I mean the law copyists or scriveners. I've known very many of them, professionally and privately, and, if I pleased, could relate divers' histories at which good-natured gentlemen might smile and sentimental souls might weep. But I waive the biographies of all other scriveners for a few passages in the life of Bartleby, who was a scrivener the strangest I ever saw or heard of. While of other law copyists, I might write the complete life of Bartleby, nothing of that sort can be done. I believe that no materials exist for a full and satisfactory biography of this man. It is an irreparable loss to literature. Bartleby was one of those beings of whom nothing is ascertainable, except from the original sources, and in his case, those are very small. What my own astonished eyes saw of Bartleby, that is all I know of him, except indeed one vague report which will appear in the sequel. Ere introducing the scrivener as he first appeared to me, it is fit I make some mention of myself, my employees, my business, my chambers, and general surroundings, because some such description is indispensable to an adequate understanding of the chief character about to be presented. I am a man who, from his youth upwards, has been filled with a profound conviction that the easiest way of life is the best. Hence, though I belong to a profession proverbially energetic and nervous, even to turbulence at times, yet nothing of that sort have I ever suffered to invade my peace. I am one of those unambitious lawyers who never addresses a jury or in any way draws down public applause, but in the cool tranquility of a snug retreat do a snug business among rich men's bonds and mortgages and title deeds. All who know me consider me an eminently safe man. The late John Jacob Astor, a personage a little given to poetic enthusiasm, had no hesitation in pronouncing my first grand point to be prudence, my next method. I do not speak it in vanity, but simply record the fact that I was not unemployed in my profession by the late John Jacob Astor, a name which, I admit, I love to repeat for it hath a rounded and orbicular sound to it, and rings like unto bullion. I will freely add that I was not insensible to the late John Jacob Astor's good opinion. Sometime prior to the period at which this little history begins, my avocations had been largely increased. The good old office now extinct in the state of New York, of a master in chancery, had been conferred upon me. It was not a very arduous office, but very pleasantly remunerative. I seldom lose my temper, much more seldom indulge in dangerous indignation at wrongs and outrages. But I must be permitted to be rash here and declare that I consider the sudden and violent abrogation of the office of Master and Chancery by the new Constitution as a premature act, as I had counted upon a life lease of the profits whereas I only received those of a few short years. But this is by the way. My chambers were upstairs, at number Wall Street. At one end, they looked upon the white wall of the interior of a spacious skylight shaft, penetrating the building from top to bottom. This view 
might have been considered rather tame and otherwise deficient in what landscape painters call life. But if so, the view from the other end of my chambers offered, at least, a contrast, if nothing more. In that direction, my windows commanded an unobstructed view of a lofty brick wall, black by age and everlasting shade, which wall required no spyglass to bring out its lurking beauties, but for the benefit of all nearsighted spectators, was pushed up to within ten feet of my window panes. Owing to the great height of the surrounding buildings and my chambers being on the second floor, the interval between this wall and mine not a little resembled a huge square cistern. At the period just preceding the advent of Bartleby, I had two persons as copyists in my employment and a promising lad as an office boy. First, turkey. Second, nippers. Third, ginger nut. These may seem names, the like of which are not usually found in the dictionary. The truth, they are nicknames, mutually conferred upon each other by my three clerks, and were deemed expressive of their respective persons or characters. Turkey was a short, pursy Englishman of about my own age, that is, somewhere not far from sixty. In the morning, one might say, his face was of fine, florid hue. But after twelve o'clock meridian, his dinner hour, it blazed like a grate full of Christmas coals, and continued blazing, but as it were, with a gradual wane till six o'clock p.m. or thereabouts, after which I saw no more of the proprietor of the face, which gaining its meridian with the sun seemed to set with it, to rise, culminate, and decline the following day with a like regularity and undiminished glory. There are many singular coincidences I have known in the course of my life, not the least among which was the fact that, exactly when Turkey displayed his fullest beams from his red and radiant countenance, just then too, at that critical moment, began the daily period when I considered his business capacities as seriously disturbed for the remainder of the twenty-four hours. Not that he was absolutely idle or averse to business, then, far from it. The difficulty was he was apt to be altogether too energetic. There was a strange, inflamed, flurried, flighty recklessness of activity about him. He would be incautious in dipping his pen into his inkstand. All his blots upon my documents were dropped there after twelve o'clock meridian. Indeed, not only would he be reckless and sadly given to making blots in the afternoon, but some days he went further and was rather noisy. At such times, too, his face flamed with augmented blazonry, as if cannon coal had been heaped on anthracite. He made an unpleasant racket with his chair, spilled his sandbox, and mending his pens impatiently split them all to pieces and threw them on the floor in a sudden passion, stood up and leaned over his table, boxing his papers about in a most indecorous manner, very sad to behold in an elderly man like him. Nevertheless, as he was in many ways a most valuable person to me, and all the time before twelve o'clock meridian was the quickest, steadiest character too, accomplishing a great deal of work in a style not easily to be matched. For these reasons, I was willing to overlook his eccentricities, though indeed occasionally remonstrated with him. 
I did this very gently, however, because though the civilest, nay, the blandest, the most reverential of men in the morning, yet in the afternoon, he was disposed, upon provocation, to be slightly rash with his tongue. In fact, insolent. Now, valuing his morning services as I did, and resolved not to lose them, yet at the same time made uncomfortable by his inflamed ways after twelve o'clock, and being a man of peace, unwilling by my admonitions to call forth unseemly retorts from him, I took upon me, one Saturday noon, he was always worse on Saturdays, to hint to him, very kindly, that perhaps, now that he was growing old, it might be well to abridge his labours, in short, he need not come to my chambers after twelve o'clock, but, dinner over, had best go home to his lodgings and rest himself till tea-time. But no, he insisted upon his afternoon devotions. His countenance became intolerably fervid, as he oratorically assured me, gesticulating with a long ruler at the other end of the room, that if his services in the morning were useful, how indispensable then in the afternoon. With submission, sir, said Turkey, on this occasion, I consider myself your right-hand man. In the morning I but marshal and deploy my columns, but in the afternoon I put myself at their head and gallantly charge the foe. Thus, and he made a violent thrust with the ruler. But the blots, Turkey, intimated I. True, but with submission, sir, behold these hairs. I'm getting old. Surely, sir, a blot or two of a warm afternoon is not to be severely urged against grey hairs. Old age, even if it blot the page, is honourable. With submission, sir, we both are getting old. This appeal to my fellow feeling was hardly to be resisted. At all events, I saw that go he would not, so I made up my mind to let him stay, resolving, nevertheless, to see to it that, during the afternoon, he had to do with my less important papers. Nippers, the second on my list, was a whiskered, sallow, and upon the whole, rather piratical-looking young man of about five-and-twenty. I always deemed him the victim of two evil powers, ambition and indigestion. The ambition was evinced by a certain impatience of the duties of a mere copyist, an unwarrantable usurpation of strictly professional affairs, such as the original drawing up of legal documents. The indigestion seemed betokened in an occasional nervous testiness and grinning irritability, causing the teeth to audibly grind together over mistakes committed in copying. Unnecessary maledictions hissed rather than spoken in the heat of business, and especially by a continual discontent with the height of the table where he worked. Though of a very ingenious mechanical turn, Nippers could never get his table to suit him. He put chips under it, blocks of various sorts, bits of pasteboard, and at last went so far as to attempt an exquisite adjustment by final pieces of folded blotting paper. But no invention would answer. If for the sake of easing his back, he brought the table lid at a sharp angle well up towards his chin, and wrote, there like a man using the steep roof of a Dutch house for his desk, then he declared that it stopped the circulation in his arms. 
If now he lowered the table to his waistbands and stooped over it in writing, then there was a sore aching in his back. In short, the truth of the matter was, Nippers knew not what he wanted. Or if he wanted anything, it was to be rid of the Scrivener's table altogether. Among the manifestations of his diseased ambition was a fondness he had for receiving visits from certain ambiguous-looking fellows in seedy coats, whom he called his clients. Indeed, I was aware that not only was he, at times, considerable of a ward politician, but he occasionally did a little business at the justices' courts. I was not unknown on the steps of the tombs. I have good reason to believe, however, that one individual who called upon him at my chambers, and who, with a grand air, he insisted was his client, was no other than a dun and the alleged title deed a bill. But with all his failings and the annoyances he caused me, Nippers, like his compatriot Turkey, was a very useful man to me, wrote a neat, swift hand, and, when he chose, was not deficient in a gentlemanly sort of deportment. Added to this, he always dressed in a gentlemanly sort of way, and so, incidentally, reflected credit upon my chambers. Whereas, with respect to Turkey, I had much ado to keep him from being a reproach to me. His clothes were apt to look oily and smell of eating houses. He wore his pantaloons very loose and baggy in summer. His coats were execrable, his hat not to be handled. But while the hat was a thing of indifference to me, inasmuch as his natural civility and deference as a dependent Englishman always led him to doff it the moment he entered the room, yet his coat was another matter. Concerning his coats, I reasoned with him, but with no effect. The truth was, I suppose, that a man with so small an income could not afford to sport such a lustrous face and a lustrous coat at one and the same time. As Nippers once observed, Turkey's money went chiefly for red ink. One winter day, I presented Turkey with a highly respectable-looking coat of my own, a padded grey coat of a most comfortable warmth, and buttoned straight up from the knee to the neck. I thought Turkey would appreciate the favour and abate his rashness and obstreperousness of afternoons. But no, I verily believe that buttoning himself up in so downy and blanket-like a coat had a pernicious effect upon him, upon the same principle that too much oats are bad for horses. In fact, precisely as a rash, restive horse is said to feel his oats, so Turkey felt his coat. It made him insolent. He was a man whom prosperity harmed. Though concerning the self-indulgent habits of Turkey, I had my own private surmises. Yet with Nifers, I was well persuaded that, whatever might be his faults in other respects, he was at least a temperate young man. But indeed, nature herself seemed to have been his vintner, and at his birth charged him so thoroughly with an irritable brandy-like disposition that all subsequent potations were needless. When I consider how, amid the stillness of my chambers, Nippers would sometimes impatiently rise from his seat and, stooping over his table, spread his arms wide apart, seize the whole desk, and move it and jerk it with a grim grinding motion on the floor, as if the table were a perverse voluntary agent intent on thwarting and vexing him. 
I plainly perceived that, for nippers, brandy and water were altogether superfluous. It was fortunate for me that, owing to its peculiar cause, indigestion, the irritability and consequent nervousness of nippers, were mainly observable in the morning, while in the afternoon he was comparatively mild, so that turkeys' paroxysms only coming on about twelve o'clock, I never had to do with their eccentricities at one time. Their fits relieved each other like guards. When nippers was on, turkeys was off, and vice versa. This was a good natural arrangement under their circumstances. Gingernut, the third on my list, was a lad some twelve years old. His father was a carman, ambitious of seeing his son on the bench instead of a cart before he died. So he sent him to my office as a student at law, errand boy, cleaner and sweeper, at the rate of one dollar a week. He had a little desk to himself, but he did not use it much. Upon inspection, the drawer exhibited a great array of the shelves of various sorts of nuts. Indeed, to this quick-witted youth, the whole noble science of law was contained in a nutshell. Not the least among the employments of Ginger Nut, as well as one which he discharged with the most alacrity, was his duty as cake and apple purveyor for turkey and nippers. Copying law papers being proverbially a dry, husky sort of business, my two scriveners were fain to moisten their mouths, very often with Spitzenbergs, to be had at the numerous stalls, nay, the custom house and post office. Also, they sent Gingernut very frequently for that peculiar cake, small, flat, round, and very spicy, after which he had been named by them. Of a cold morning, when business was but dull, Turkey would gobble up scores of these cakes, as if they were mere wafers. Indeed, they sell them at the rate of six or eight for a penny, the scrape of his pen blending with the crunching of the crisp particles in his mouth. Of all the fiery afternoon blunders and flurried rashnesses of Turkey, was his once moistening a ginger cake between his lips and clapping it onto a mortgage for a seal. I came within an ace of dismissing him then, but he mollified me by making a bow and saying, With submission, sir, it was generous of me to find you in stationery on my own account. Now, my original business, that of a conveyancer and title hunter, and drawer up of recondite documents of all sorts, was considerably increased by receiving the master's office. There was now great work for scriveners. Not only must I push the clerks already with me, but I must have additional help. In answer to my advertisement, a motionless young man one morning stood upon my office threshold, the door being open, for it was summer. I can see that figure now, pallidly neat, pitiably respectable, incurably forlorn. It was Bartleby. After a few words touching his qualifications, I engaged him, glad to have among my corps of copyists a man of so singularly sedate an aspect which I thought might operate beneficially between the flighty temper of Turkey and the fiery one of Nippers. I should have stated before that ground, glass, folding doors divided my premises into two parts, one of which was occupied by my scriveners, the other by myself. According to my humour, I threw open these doors or closed them. I resolved to assign Bartleby a corner by the folding doors, but on my side of them, so as to have this quiet man within easy call, 
in case any trifling thing was to be done. I placed his desk close up to a small side window in that part of the room, a window which originally had afforded a lateral view of certain grimy backyards and bricks, but which, owing to subsequent erections, commanded at present no view at all, though it gave some light. Within three feet of the panes was a wall, and the light came down from far above, between two lofty buildings, as from a very small opening in a dome. Still further to a satisfactory arrangement, I procured a high green folding screen, which might entirely isolate Bartleby from my sight, though not remove him from my voice. And thus, in a manner, privacy and society were conjoined. At first, Bartleby did an extraordinary quantity of writing. As if long famishing for something to copy, he seemed to gorge himself on my documents. There was no pause for digestion. He ran a day and night line, copying by sunlight and by candlelight. I should have been quite delighted with this application, had he been cheerfully industrious. But he wrote on silently, palely, mechanically. It is, of course, an indispensable part of a scrivener's business to verify the accuracy of his copy, word by word. Where there are two or more scriveners in an office, they assist each other in this examination, one reading from the copy, the other holding the original. It is a very dull, wearisome, and lethargic affair. I can readily imagine, to some temperaments, it would be altogether intolerable. For example, I cannot credit that the mettlesome poet, Byron, would have contentedly sat down with Bartleby to examine a document of, say, 500 pages, closely written in a crimpy hand. Now and then, in the haste of business, it had been my habit to assist in comparing such brief document myself, calling turkey or nippers for this purpose. One object I had, in placing Bartleby so handy to me behind the screen, was to avail myself of his services on such trivial occasions. It was on the third day, I think, of his being with me, and before any necessity had arisen for having his own writing examined, that being much hurried to complete a small affair I had in hand, I abruptly called to Bartleby. In my haste and natural expectancy of instant compliance, I sat with my head bent over the original on my desk, and my right hand sideways, and somewhat nervously extended with the copy, so that immediately upon emerging from his retreat, Bartleby might snatch it and proceed to business without the least delay. In this very attitude did I sit when I called to him, rapidly stating what it was I wanted him to do, namely, to examine a small paper with me. Imagine my surprise, nay, my consternation, when, without moving from his privacy, Bartleby, in a singularly mild, firm voice, replied, I would prefer not to. I sat a while in perfect silence, rallying my stunned faculties. Immediately it occurred to me that my ears had deceived me, or Bartleby had entirely misunderstood my meaning. I repeated my request in the clearest tone I could assume, but in quite as clear a one came the previous reply. I would prefer not to. Prefer not to, echoed I, rising in high excitement and crossing the room with a stride. What do you mean? Are you moonstruck? I want you to help me compare this sheet here. Take it. And I thrust it towards him. I would prefer not to, said he. I looked at him steadfastly. His face was leanly composed, 
his grey eye dimly calm. Not a wrinkle of agitation rippled him. Had there been the least uneasiness, anger, impatience or impertinence in his manner, in other words, had there been anything ordinarily human about him, doubtless I should have violently dismissed him from my premises. But as it was, I should have as soon thought of turning my pale plaster of Paris bust of Cicero out of the doors. I stood gazing at him a while, as he went on with his own writing, and then reseated myself at my desk. This is very strange, thought I. What had one best do? But my business hurried me. I concluded to forget the matter for the present, reserving it for my future leisure. So, calling nippers from the other room, the paper was speedily examined. A few days after this, Bartleby concluded four lengthy documents, being quadruplicates of a week's testimony taken before me in my high court of chancery. It became necessary to examine them. It was an important suit, and great accuracy was imperative. Having all things arranged, I called Turkey, Nippers, and Gingernut from the next room, meaning to place the four copies in the hands of my four clerks, while I should read from the original. Accordingly, Turkey, Nippers, and Gingernut had taken their seats in a row, each with his document in his hand, when I called to Bartleby to join this interesting group. Bartleby, quick, I am waiting. I heard a slow scrape of his chair legs on the uncarpeted floor, and soon he appeared, standing at the entrance of his hermitage. What is wanted, said he mildly. The copies, the copies, said I hurriedly. We're going to examine them. There. And I held towards him the fourth quadruplicate. I would prefer not to, he said, and gently disappeared behind the screen. For a few moments I was turned into a pillar of salt, standing at the head of my seated column of clerks. Recovering myself, I advanced towards the screen and demanded the reason for such extraordinary conduct. Why do you refuse? I would prefer not to. With any other man, I should have flown outright into a dreadful passion, scorned all further words, and thrust him ignominiously from my presence. But there was something about Bartleby that not only strangely disarmed me, but in a wonderful manner touched and disconcerted me. I began to reason with him. These are your own copies we're about to examine. It is labor-saving to you, because one examination will answer for your four papers. It is common usage. Every copyist is bound to help examine his copy. Is it not so? Will you not speak? Answer. I prefer not to, he replied, in a flute-like tone. It seemed to me that, while I had been addressing him, he carefully revolved every statement that I made, fully comprehended the meaning, could not gainsay their irresistible conclusion, but at the same time some paramount consideration prevailed with him to reply as he did. You are decided, then, not to comply with my request, a request made according to common usage and common sense. He briefly gave me to understand that on that point my judgment was sound. Yes, his decision was irreversible. It is not seldom the case that when a man is browbeaten in some unprecedented and violently unreasonable way, he begins to stagger in his own plainest faith. He begins, as it were, vaguely to surmise that, wonderful as it may be, all the justice and all the reason is on the other side. Accordingly, if any disinterested persons are present, 
He turns to them for some reinforcement for his own faltering mind. Turkey, said I, what do you think of this? Am I not right? With submission, sir, said Turkey, in his blandest tone, I think that you are. Nippers, said I, what do you think of it? I think I should throw him out of the office. The reader of nice perceptions will perceive that, it being morning, Turkey's answer is couched in polite and tranquil terms, but Nippers replies in ill-tempered ones. Or, to repeat a previous sentence, Nippers' ugly mood was on duty, and Turkey's off. Gingernut, said I, willing to enlist the smallest suffrage in my behalf. What do you think of it? I think, sir, he's a little loony, replied Gingernut with a grin. You hear what they say, said I, turning towards the screen. Come forth and do your duty. But he vouchsafed no reply. I pondered a moment in sore perplexity. But once more, business hurried me. I determined again to postpone the consideration of this dilemma to my future leisure. With a little trouble, we made out to examine the papers without Bartleby, though at every page or two, Turkey deferentially dropped his opinion that this proceeding was quite out of the common. While Nippers, twitching in his chair with a dyspeptic nervousness, ground out between his set teeth, occasional hissing maledictions against the stubborn oaf behind the screen. And for his, Nippers' part, this was the first and the last time he would do another man's business without pay. Meanwhile, Bartleby sat in his hermitage, oblivious to everything but his own peculiar business there. Some days passed, the scrivener being employed upon another lengthy work. His late remarkable conduct led me to regard his ways narrowly. I observed that he never went to dinner, indeed, that he never went anywhere. As yet, I had never, of my personal knowledge, known him to be outside of my office. He was a perpetual sentry in the corner. At about eleven o'clock, though, in the morning, I noticed that Ginger Nut would advance toward the opening in Bartleby's screen, as if silently beckoned thither by a gesture invisible to me where I sat. The boy would then leave the office, jingling a few pence, and reappear with a handful of ginger nuts, which he delivered in the hermitage, receiving two of the cakes for his trouble. He lives then on ginger nuts, thought I, never eats a dinner, properly speaking. He must be a vegetarian then, but no, he never eats even vegetables. He eats nothing but ginger nuts. My mind then ran on in reveries concerning the probable effects upon the human constitution of living entirely in ginger nuts. Ginger nuts are so called because they contain ginger as one of their peculiar constituents and the final flavoring one. Now what was ginger? A hot, spicy thing. Was Bartleby hot and spicy? Not at all. Ginger then had no effect upon Bartleby. Probably he preferred it should have none. Nothing so aggravates an earnest person as a passive resistance. If the individual so resisted be of a not inhumane temper, and the resisting one perfectly harmless in his passivity, then, in the better moods of the former, he will endeavour charitably to construe to his imagination what proves impossible to be solved by his judgment. Even so, for the most part, I regarded Bartleby in his ways. Poor fellow, thought I. He means no mischief. It is plain he intends no insolence. His aspect sufficiently evinces that his eccentricities are involuntary. 
He's useful to me. I can get along with him. If I turn him away, the chances are he will fall in with some less indulgent employer, and then he'll be rudely treated and perhaps driven forth miserably to starve. Yes, here I can cheaply purchase a delicious self-approval. To befriend Bartleby, to humour him in his strange willfulness, will cost me little or nothing, while I lay up in my soul what will eventually prove a sweet morsel for my conscience. But this mood was not invariable with me. The passiveness of Bartleby sometimes irritated me. I felt strangely goaded on to encounter him in new opposition, to elicit some angry spark from him answerable to my own. But indeed, I might as well have essayed to strike fire with my knuckles against a bit of Windsor soap. But one afternoon, the evil impulse in me mastered me, and the following little scene ensued. Bartleby, said I, when those papers are all copied, I will compare them with you. I would prefer not to. How? Surely you do not mean to persist in that mullish vagary. No answer. I threw open the folding doors nearby, and turning upon Turkey and Nippers, exclaimed, Bartleby a second time says he won't examine his papers. What do you think of it, Turkey? It was afternoon, be it remembered. Turkey sat glowing like a brass boiler, his bald head steaming, his hands reeling among his blotted papers. Think of it, roared Turkey. I think I'll just step behind a scream and black his eyes for him. So saying, Turkey rose to his feet and threw his arms into a pugilistic position. He was hurrying away to make good his promise when I detained him, alarmed at the effect of incautiously rousing Turkey's combativeness after dinner. Sit down, Turkey, said I, and hear what Nippers has to say. What do you think of it, Nippers? Would I not be justified in immediately dismissing Bartleby? Excuse me, that is for you to decide, sir. I think his conduct quite unusual, and indeed unjust, as regards Turkey and myself. But it may only be a passing whim. Ah, exclaimed I, you've strangely changed your mind, then. You speak very gently of him now. All bear, cried Turkey. Gentleness is effects of bear. Nippers and I dine together, today. You see how gentle I am, sir? Shall I go and black his eyes? You refer to Bartleby, I suppose. No, no, not today, Turkey, I replied. Pray, put up your fists. I closed the doors and again advanced towards Bartleby. I felt additional incentives tempting me to my fate. I burned to be rebelled against again. I remembered that Bartleby never left the office. Bartleby, said I, Ginger Nut is away. Just step round to the post office, won't you? It was about a three minutes walk and see if there's anything for me. I would prefer not to. You will not? I prefer not. I staggered to my desk and sat there in deep study. My blind inveteracy returned. Was there any other thing in which I could procure myself to be ignominiously repulsed by this lean, penniless, white, my hired clerk? What added thing is there, perfectly reasonable, that he will be sure to refuse to do? Bartleby? No answer. Bartleby? In a louder tone. No answer. Bartleby, I roared. Like a very ghost, agreeably to the laws of magical invocation, 
At the third summons, he appeared at the entrance of his hermitage. Go to the next room and tell Nippers to come to me. I prefer not to, he respectfully and slowly said, and mildly disappeared. Very good, Bartleby, said I, in a quiet sort of serenely, severe, self-possessed tone, intimating the unalterable purpose of some terrible retribution very close at hand. At the moment, I half intended something of the kind, but upon the whole, as it was drawing towards my dinner hour, I thought it best to put on my hat and walk home for the day, suffering much from perplexity and distress of mind. Shall I acknowledge it? The conclusion of this whole business was that it soon became a fixed fact of my chambers that a pale young scrivener by the name of Brattleby had a desk there, that he copied for me at the usual rate of four cents a folio, 100 words, but he was permanently exempt from examining the work done by him, that duty being transferred to turkey and nippers, out of compliment, doubtless, to their superior acuteness. Moreover, said Bartleby, was never, on any account, to be dispatched on the most trivial errand of any sort, and that if even entreated to take upon him such a matter, it was generally understood that he would prefer not to, in other words, that he would refuse point blank. As days passed on, I became considerably reconciled to Bartleby. His steadiness, his freedom from all dissipation, his incessant industry, except when he chose to throw himself into a standing reverie behind a screen, his great stillness, his unalterableness of demeanour under all circumstances, made him a valuable acquisition. One prime thing was this, he was always there, first in the morning, continually through the day, and the last at night. I had a singular confidence in his honesty. I felt my most precious papers perfectly safe in his hands. Sometimes, to be sure, I could not, for the very soul of me, avoid falling into sudden spasmodic passions with him. For it was exceedingly difficult to bear in mind all the times those strange peculiarities, privileges, and unheard of exemptions, forming the tacit stipulations on Bartleby's part under which he remained in my office. Now and then, in the eagerness of dispatching pressing business, I would inadvertently summon Bartleby, in a short, rapid tone, to put his finger, say, on the incipient tie of a bit of red tape, with which I was about compressing some papers. Of course, from behind the screen, the usual answer, I prefer not to, were sure to come. And then, how could a human creature, with the common infirmities of our nature, refrain from bitterly exclaiming upon such perversiveness, such unreasonableness? However, every added repulse of this sort which I received, only tended to lessen the probability of my repeating the inadvertence. Here it must be said that according to the custom of most legal gentlemen occupying chambers in densely populated law buildings, there were several keys to my door. One was kept by a woman residing in the attic, which person weekly scrubbed and daily swept and dusted my apartments. Another was kept by Turkey for convenience sake. The third. I sometimes carried in my own pocket. The fourth I knew not who had. Now one Sunday morning I happened to go to Trinity Church to hear a celebrated preacher. And finding myself rather early on the ground, I thought I would walk round to my chambers for a while. Luckily I had my key with me, but upon applying it to the lock, 
I found it resisted by something inserted from the inside. Quite surprised, I called out, when, to my consternation, a key was turned from within. And thrusting his lean visage at me and holding the door ajar, the apparition of Bartleby appeared. In his shirt sleeves, and otherwise in a strangely tattered desabille, saying quietly that he was sorry, but he was deeply engaged just then, and preferred not admitting me at present. In a brief word or two, he moreover added that perhaps I had better walk round the block two or three times, and by that time he would probably have concluded his affairs. Now the utterly unsurmised appearance of Bartleby, tenanting my law chambers of a Sunday morning, with his cadaverously gentlemanly nonchalance, yet withal firm and self-possessed, had such a strange effect on me, that incontinently I slunk away from my own door and did as desired. But not without sundry twinges of impotent rebellion against the mild effrontery of this unaccountable scrivener. Indeed, it was his wonderful mildness chiefly which not only disarmed me, but unmanned me, as it were. For I consider that, one, for a time, is a sort of unmanned when he tranquilly permits his hired clerk to dictate to him and order him away from his own premises. Furthermore, I was full of uneasiness as to what Bartleby could possibly be doing in my office in his shirt sleeves and in an otherwise dismantled condition on a Sunday morning. Was anything amiss going on? Nay, that was out of the question. It was not to be thought of for a moment that Bartleby was an immoral person. What could he be doing there? Copying? Nay, again, whatever might be his eccentricities, Bartleby was an eminently decorous person. He would be the last man to sit down to his desk in any state approaching nudity. Besides, it was Sunday, and there was something about Bartleby that forbade the supposition that he would by any secular occupation violate the proprieties of the day. Nevertheless, my mind was not pacified, and full of a restless curiosity, I at last returned to the door. Without hindrance, I inserted my key, opened it, and entered. Bartleby was not to be seen. I looked round anxiously, peeped behind his screen, but it was very plain that he was gone. Upon more closely examining the place, I surmised that for an indefinite period, Bartleby must have ate, dressed, and slept in my office, and that, two without plate, mirror, or bed, the cushioned seat of a rickety old sofa in one corner bore the faint impress of a lean, reclining form. Rolled away under his desk, I found a blanket, under the empty grate, a blacking box and brush, on a chair, a tin basin with soap and a ragged towel, and a newspaper, a few crumbs of ginger nuts, and a morsel of cheese. Yes, thought I, it is evident enough that Bartleby has been making his home here, keeping Bachelor's Hall all by himself. Immediately then the thought came, sweeping across me, what miserable friendlessness and loneliness are here revealed. His poverty is great, but his solitude, how horrible. Think of it, of a Sunday, Wall Street is deserted as Petra and every night of every day is an emptiness. This building, too, which of weekdays hums with industry and life, at nightfall echoes with share of vacancy, and all through Sunday is forlorn. And here Bartleby makes his home, sole spectator, of a solitude 
which he has seen all populous, a sort of innocent and transformed Marius, brooding among the ruins of Carthage. For the first time in my life, a feeling of overpowering, stinging melancholy seized me. Before, I had never experienced aught but a not unpleasing sadness. The bond of a common humanity now drew me irresistibly to gloom. A fraternal melancholy. For both I and Bartleby are sons of Adam. I remembered the bright silks and sparkling faces I had seen that day, in gala trim, swan-like, sailing down the Mississippi of Broadway, and I contrasted them with a pallid, copyist, and thought to myself, Ah, happiness courts the light. So we deem, the world is merry, but misery hides aloof, so we deem that misery there is none. These sad fancyings, chimeras, doubtless of a sick and silly brain, led on to other and more special thoughts concerning the eccentricities of Bartleby. Presentiments of strange discoveries hovered around me. The scrivener's pale form appeared to me, laid out, among uncaring strangers in its shivering, winding sheet. Good night. <laughs>